Welcome to episode 2A of the Being an Event podcast. I'm Alex here with Andrew, and today we feature an interview with two philosophers, David Marazella and Gil Moraham, where we talk about Deleuze, Spinoza, philosophy of science in France, and lots of other things. But first, Andrew and I offer our reading and interpretation of Alan Badiou's Being an Event, Part 2, Meditation 10, which is focused on Spinoza. Okay, so this is the Bad You Deleuze Grudge Match episode. Um, and I don't know, I have, so here's my suggestion for how we could potentially begin, which is, um, you know, there's a sort of like folk story that often gets told about how, you know, Bedu and Deleuze sort of fought like cats and dogs and Bedu would send his, you know, Maoist henchmen into Deleuze's seminar and disrupt it. And they, you know, there's a sort of intellectual, um, you know, encounter maybe that happens at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s. And so I actually want to read from Francois Doss. So, so Doss put together this kind of monster biography, which actually I've never read cover to cover. You probably have. Oh, it's, yeah, it's great. I read it in just a series of days, took mad notes, you know, slept with it under my pillow. <laughs> I mean, I sort of dip into it to refer to some things mostly because there was one point where, what was it? You know, I have this kind of like, I mean, you know that I have this kind of like um, sort of silly theory about Deleuze that actually the postscript on control societies, which is just this five page essay, you know, that's very uncharacteristic of Deleuze will eventually become, you know, one of the most kind of referenced pieces that he writes. And so I looked in the Francois Das to see what he says about the piece. And mm. there's like one paragraph. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. There's one paragraph on the postscript. So either I'm completely wrong or Das has this kind of like um, vision of Deleuze. I think that's very much filtered through, you know, what can we say? Like the kind of, the, the the heyday right like from like 68 to till the end of a thousand plateaus or something like that i mean it's a really magisterial work but also it happened through interviewing a lot of people who were in Deleuze and Guattari's lives mm. and so there's a certain incentive for them to sort of celebrate and establish their own legacy as well right yeah okay so i'm going to read from this this chapter that you sent me actually um just to kind of set the scene about this, this sort of grudge match. Uh, so this is from Francois Doss, uh, Intersecting Lives. So it goes like this. Alan Badiou was Deleuze's colleague at the philosophy department at Vincennes, where he taught for about 30 years. For Badiou, the success of Anti-Oedipus had created some heavy competition. Since Deleuze's seminar had become an event not to be missed at the Vincennes philosophy department. In 1977, he decided that Deleuze had become a, quote, enemy of the people. <laughs> Bedieu penned an article with the particularly evocative title, The Fascism of the Potato, which we can talk about, uh, which he signed under a pseudonym. 
The savage attack was the crowning moment of the years of verbal guerrilla warfare against Deliz, led by Baijiu and his Maoist troops on the Vincennes campus since the early 1970s. At the height of the conflict, Baijiu's, quote, men would prevent Deleuze from finishing his seminar. <laughs> Baijiu himself would occasionally turn up at Deleuze's seminar to interrupt him, as he admits in the book he wrote on Deleuze in 1997, which I hope we can also talk about. Uh, quote, for a Maoist like me, Deleuze, the philosophical inspiration for what I call the anarchist desirers is a formidable enemy. <laughs> Ooh. Reminds me of that great video that always pops up every couple of years of the situationist interrupting the Lacan seminar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that the one where... Um, Right, where Lacan says, like, you, you're just, you just want a new master and you will have one. You know, I think that's the, that's the 68 four door discourses thing. But I mean, of course, it, it sort of happens like that. You know, yeah. Lacan is there with this huge bouffant and his, like, enormous scarf. And this, like, really schlubby-looking situationist comes in and, like, tries to accuse him. I think he, like, puts out his cigar or something. <laughs> and he kind of, like, puts him into a, uh, like, he sort of fends him off pretty well i think i mean but how often do these encounters really happen i mean another one that i can think of is that at the schizo cultures uh conference that uh silver lotringer put together at columbia apparently foucault got interrupted by a um uh what's what oh what what were they the when those maoists who became right-wingers and accused him of being the agent of the cia but you know i guess it was just in the air at that time so, okay, so we have this, you know, we have this like um, encounter that seems to be somewhat um, antagonistic. Um, and I was, you know, I was looking back through being an event, which is from 1988. And as far as I can tell, he only mentions Deleuze like once or twice. And it's extremely, it's like in a footnote or something at the very end. But he does address Spinoza and... You know, I think we have to take Bedu's critique of Spinoza as a not so thinly veiled attack on Deleuze. I can also note that what is philosophy, which comes out in the early to mid nineties, favorably cites Bedu. There's a one of the examples, example twelve. It's all about Bedu and his use of Cantor, numbers, the generic function, events, truth. And so in that, you know, this mature work of someone trying to really establish a really broad overview and method, I mean, uh, Badiou comes up quite favorably as someone who's doing the type of philosophy that they, they want. So what is philosophy, a late work? You know, a lot of people say that it, it really was Deleuze that, that wrote it, even though it's co-signed by Deleuze and Guattari. But you're absolutely right. I mean, and that that was that kind of came as a shock to me. That example twelve that you mentioned, just a a crib sheet on being an event, and to think that Deleuze was, you know, it's three years after being an event, and Deleuze I think was like felt like that was a book that he had to contend with, you know, and even 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 in the structure of that book, what is philosophy, um, the event comes up a ton in that book. Um, they're, they're kind of the culminate, you know, the, like the, like structuring refrain of that book, art, science, philosophy sounds a lot like bad art, science, politics, love. Right. Yeah. And so I wonder if they weren't, I wonder if they weren't, um, 
I don't know, sort of like absorbing or co-opting or, or fending off or some combination of all three of those things. Uh, bad you, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe an earlier disagreement comes along in, or something with stage disagreement at least, would be in A Thousand Plateaus, mm. in which Deleuze very clearly, or Deleuze and Guattari, um, propose that axiomatics is state philosophy and problematics is how the no more nomad war machine moves. And so then, you know, not too long after that, we get, you know, being an event and it's all axiomatic. Yeah. Which is, which is a, a huge, a sort of, um, I think, uh, it's a huge provocation, you know, and, and let's be clear. Like, I don't think it really landed on, I don't think it really like bore fruit for a long time. Like look at the translation history of being an event. It took like, I don't know, 15 or more years for it to be translated into English. And so Badiou writing that in 1988, I think was an unusual direction for French philosophy to go in, um, which makes it all the more interesting that Deleuze felt like he had to sort of respond to it directly. Um, and maybe even, I mean, I don't know what you think of this, Andrew, but like, I always, it always was a head scratcher for me, the whole like philosophy is the creation of concepts, you know, which is the sort of thesis of that book. Cause it just seems like that's not a Deleuzean thing to say, creation of concepts. And I wonder if, if, I don't know, maybe you disagree, but when I wonder if like, that's something that Badiou would say, you know, <laughs> I wonder if even, even in that, even if that, even in that sort of like turn to the concept, we can see a sort of like a Deleuzean prophylactic move or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the status of thought is the mo- one of the more difficult things for Deleuze. Like you can tell it motivates him, but the thinkers that he goes to for it are very sort of undeleuzean, if you will, um, in difference and repetition. It's ideas with a capital I, which always, you know, mm. is it this reverse inverted Platonism, mm. which already puts him in a sort of proximity to Badiou. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, is it the shock to thought? Okay, that, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, I was just reading Cinema 2 with some students. And that comes through Arto. Okay, that's kind of very Deleuzean. Mm-hmm. But then um, thought itself is actually introduced in, in that chapter through Heidegger, yeah. which once again, I mean, my <laughs> God, not very Deleuzean. He hates Heidegger. And actually, Bedou hates Heidegger too, but maybe for a different reason. Yeah. I think he has, a, he has a challenge of where does thought come from? Oh, it comes from problems or it comes from the real, I don't know. Right. Whereas, you know, right. Bedou knows. It comes from you know, these axiomatics that he's setting up. It's, it's math is ontology. Yeah. So there's that, I mean, and actually Francois Das, I think recounts that there was a, um, an, a, an exchange of letters between Deleuze and Badiou kind of in this period. Um, I can't remember if it's the late eighties or early nineties, but it's sort of in and around. And so, yeah, there's some sort of encounter that I think hasn't been fully fleshed out. And then of course, you know, Badiou, um, Thanks his like, you know, uh, his, his, his sometimes friend Deleuze by absolutely just like destroying him after his death in, in the book, The Clamor of Being, <laughs> which is totally ruthless. I mean, it, honestly, it's when I first read that book, I was sort of at like peak Deleuzean fanboy stage and I just didn't want to hear it. You know, I, I was like, who, what is this? What is this like ruthless 
But these days, I think that uh, Baiji's book on Deleuze is like outstanding. And it really frames Deleuze's whole project like in a new key, you know? So for people who haven't read it, what would you say is the sort of core component of this critique that was just most persuasive for you? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not the first to say it, but the the big inter- one of the big interventions is that Baiji shifts the focus. And he basically says, um, you know, a lot of readers of Dilla's focus on anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus, but what we should really be focusing on is difference in repetition and logic of sense. And that if you do that, um, Deleuze really emerges as an, as, a, as an ontological thinker, which might seem just completely obvious and commonplace for us today, but um, that might not have been entirely clear, you know? Uh, and I think Baiji saying very clearly that Deleuze is doing like low level ontology and here's how. Um, that's not the ruthless part, but that, that's the really helpful kind of framing part. Well, I mean, I think that broaches an interesting question of something that we've chatted about, which is maybe the proximity between Deleuze and Badiou actually is pretty close, especially on the level of their metaphysics or ontology. Yeah, yeah. And, and that people take them as different because maybe they're different political strategies that unfold in the way in which they sort of cash out the world. Yeah. But that in fact, maybe the really basic element, philosophical elements of how they're looking at the world, maybe not always that different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you want to say more? Because, because I sort of like in rereading being an event for this podcast, you know, I was like, I, I had completely had done complete amnesia on bad use claims about what he calls, um, uh, inconsistent multiples. And, and in reading, in reading being an event again, you know, he, he gives this image of the world that frankly looks a lot like Deleuze's picture of the world, right? There are these sort of inconsistent multiples, um, that themselves, uh, sort of take on form, take on structure are cohered, right? In Baidu's language, he, he has a way of talking about like the act of naming, which I really like. And then also the act of counting, which I, I consider to be more or less equivalent acts. And those and those those events of counting and naming allow these kind of like incoherent multiples to cohere in. And and I can't help. I don't know. I mean, I can't help. But 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 here in the back of my mind, you know, the the whole like smooth versus striated or, or any any number of sort of like you know, all, all alternations, like territorialization, deterritorialization. And so to have Badiou say like, oh, the fundamental level of things is this sort of like deterritorialized multiplicity. <laughs> um, yeah, I had kind of forgotten that part. Yeah. No, I think the, there's a question of if Badiou is trying to make some deep metaphysical claim about the universe yeah or if he's talking about very particular elements or particular um dimensions of the world um yeah i think there's no question for d and g because by the time we get to what is philosophy but especially in something like a thousand plateaus it's like the cosmos you know they're going from the biggest element then uh, to the the micro or molecular and everything in between so very much sort of building this world even if it is a sort of strange one yeah um, 
and then for for Badiou, you know, I'm not a great reader of Badiou, and it's it's I'm in my early phases of understanding him rather than a much more mature approach. And so I'm still trying to get the basic building blocks. And so when I came across inconsistent multiplicities as well, like wow, maybe he has the similar vision of almost like a Leibnizian world or something, where there there are all these like elements that are ex- maybe externally related or make up a um, uh, non-necessary connection and that they have to be constructed or made into something. Right. I think that's right. And, and, you know, for, for Deleuze, I mean, my reading of Deleuze is that he's focusing on these sort of like pure, this, this notion of pure difference and Badiou doesn't really use that language so much, but he does like, like sort of ruthlessly resist, um, uh, like the one, <laughs> mm-hmm. Very important, but he also resists like any sort of like theory of a like kind of holistic identity or something, right? So, so there it's like a set for Bedu is is like the the flimsiest of of like you know coming together of elements or something, right? And he and he seems to think that I, I'm not I don't know enough about math to really weigh in on this, but I, I would suspect that this probably isn't true. But he seems to think that mathematicians are also equally kind of militant about the sort of like the like insubstantialness of the set itself. Right. It's not a one. It only counts as one. So that's supposed to be this kind of like very provisional kind of after the fact, you know, operation that happens. And so that's maybe another way in which um, Deleuze and Badiou are actually similar. Right. There's almost like a kind of univocity mm-hmm. principle in Badiou in the way that there's a univocity principle in Deleuze. I mean, Badiou doesn't use that word, but he does talk about um, he's I mean, for the record, Badiou is against the concept of the one. And his, he premises his the whole argument in being an event begins from this kind of, you know, dramatic claim where he says the one is not right. Nevertheless, there is this sort of like. Um, uh, you know, Badiou is sort of negating the one. He's not affirming the continuous, but he's still negating the one. And so there's this kind of, I don't know, there's a weird kind of monism or something that exists before Badiou opens the door to the like the cataclysmic event and and the and and the change that would eventually come. Yeah. And I would think, you know, if we're doing this compare contrast, how would it differ or be similar to assemblage because mm. we do have yeah. sets in Badiou and assemblages in Deleuze. You know, Deleuze is not afraid of math. Yep. He leverages it, but not nearly in the sort of precise and sparse way that Badiou will. But the assemblage itself, he sometimes describes as a, a mathematical operation, it says N minus one, which for him is the N is all of the multiple dimensions or elements and it's minus one because it's minus the one it's against unity mm. because that higher mm. synthesis the higher unity is the way in which state or microfascism finds its way in so already we see both of them against the one and their basic fundamental mathematical uh definition of things yeah i mean this goes back i think to your your earlier question about spinoza which is you know, maybe maybe it's about like which one, you know, like what one are we talking about? Because Badiou's indictment of Spinoza and also of Deleuze is that they they and it's not really an indictment. It's just a description is that they, you know, they they always return to this kind of um, 
I don't know, sort of like vital affirming as it were, just strictly positive. Um, I mean, I know that you have a, have a different take on some of these things, but, and so maybe, maybe the one or the, or the, or the, the, the una vocal or the una um, element is sort of characterized as a sort of like life giving or life affirming thing in Deleuze, whereas Bedu wants it to always be fundamentally vacuous and vacant and void and negative and absent, <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe this gets to the question of strategy then too. So for Badiou, so the state counts. I mean, I think DNG would uh, agree with that, that both the state has its oneness, but then capitalism and capitalism's sort of complex, complicity with the state counts subjects. It, um, but it has a, a specific way in which it counts them. It's always a, um, a delimitable uh, subject. And so that's about like the social democratic giving of rights or taking of rights, which they call adding or subtracting of axioms to sort of the, cap the axiomatic capitalist state. I think that you would say that as well. The power set that makes up the state is it's not only, you know, all of the sets, it is that plus the set of all those sets, you know, which is the state. And it's, you know, infinitely bigger because of that. But I think when we get to his strategy, which is to say the way out, I think that it's not to say the count is bad, it needs to, to disappear. We have a theory of the subject and we have um, fidelity to the event that um, is not an anti-math or an anti-delimiting. And it sort of springs out, it springs directly from math for Badiou. Badiou's funny because he's always trying to resist this sort of like poetic or, mm -hmm. or sort of like naively romantic posture, right? And so he sometimes attributes that to to Martin Heidegger and he calls him, you know, he says he has like a poetic ontology and that's really bad for Bedieu. And but I think the great irony about Bedieu is that like he's also just a raging romantic. It's just that he finds that sort of like ineffable, inexplicable abyss that like bursts out of, you know, he finds that as a direct, like almost mechanical or like rational consequence of mathematics itself, which is, which I think is really interesting. So I found this quote about just going back to the notion of, of the univocal in Deleuze, um, where Bedu says in being an event talking about the void, he says, there are not several voids. There is only one void. So he's trying to negate the one and his, as it were, sort of like foundation category becomes this thing, the void, yet there's almost like a unicity of the void. So there's this you, book you suggested to me a couple of years ago that really lays out a, an interesting argument. I mean, it will have to be debated in the history of ideas, but it's um, Eric Horrell's Sacred Channels, mm. in which he makes a historical argument for the transition toward symbolic reason and that his argument is this prefigures the adoption of cybernetics which he says has this sort of underground um prefiguration of all of structuralism and when you see those things lined up it really makes a lot of sense and he says that it happens through these sort of 19th century transformations in sciences like in thinking in fields and physics and Perhaps the, this could also put us on a similar path to understanding why 
Badiou and Deleuze both don't like Heidegger because Heidegger is still within this 19th or maybe previous century um, interest in language as really being uh, using grammar as a fundamental operation of understanding being, or at least meaning. And by the time we get to Badiou, you know, no, it's about math, which is about perhaps symbolization, but not uh, sig- signification. Mm-hmm. And that Deleuze is kind of in a middle ground. He won't be nearly as uh, rigorous or specific about getting rid of all signification, yeah. but is pushing towards this world where it really is about, well, for him, it's this uh, post-Nietzschean idea of forces. Mm. Whereas for Badiou, I think it's purely math. It's really in that um, abstract, uh, symbolic uh, portion of a pattern universe. Mm. Yeah, that's good. You know, maybe there's this kind of great uh, contradiction in Badiou, which is that, you know, everyone knows Badiou's relationship to math, but Badiou like never talks about computers. Which, which I think is wild, right? And you're sort of bringing that up, which is like, where's the cybernetics? Where's the, you know, because computers are the place where math becomes a pragmatic machinic event. I don't know what this means. Like maybe it just, maybe it's a generational thing. You know, maybe it's because Badgie just has this special relationship to like the theoretical component of mathematics. But it's, it's, it's always kind of stuck in my mind that we were missing there's a Badiou book we're missing, which is the Badiou book on, on the digital and computation. Um, and it feels like it should be there, right? There, there should be one of those books. Like there should be, there should be like a natural passage right into that kind of a book. I think it's worth talking about what exactly math means in this context too, because mm-hmm. maybe people who aren't around math very much yeah. sort of gloss or assume so many different things as to be math. Is math science for bad? You know, mm. math and science are in fact sort of separate. That's a good point. And if we're like a for a pure mathematician working in something as foundational set theory, which bad you is, it's really about the foundations of numbers and counting and mm-hmm. how we can even do math itself. And then the application of math in something like physics is already an empirical phenomena dealing with appearances, which they are not interested in. Mm-hmm. And then even beyond that, statistics or all the ways in which computers are used today in machine learning mm-hmm. or in um, just basic calculation in all of the things we use computation for, from accounting software to the internet, mm-hmm. that also is not really what Badu sees himself as doing. Mm-hmm. And so... I'd be curious, what do you think would be the next step to connect his set theory to something like computation? Right. Like the, like the problem of, of, um, you know, like what Donna Haraway calls techno science, because that's a complete, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's a completely different domain from what Badiou is interested in. And I wonder if, I mean, so science was, is like one of the four truth procedures, right? So he, he wants to say, maybe there's this sort of like empirical, um, empirically grounded set of encounters and events that a subject has, you know, is privy to. And so events can happen in science. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Math does seem to be about, um, sometimes I go back to sort of like the, 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 the concept of math as just sort of like um, cultivation and training and education, right? Not, not like 
algebra and, and calculus per se. So when we use a word like polymath in English, we mean like someone who's, who's well versed in any number of things, not just algebra and, and calculus. And I think that's maybe also an aspect of Bedu that's sort of his Platonism coming through, right? Where, where to be, you know, what is methesis? Methesis is just sort of the cultivation of the faculties. And a student, when they're learning, they are like cultivating the faculties. Badiou won't, won't frequently speak in that language, but he does talk, you know, I mean, that's, that's all of Badiou is like, how are subjects created, right? And so maybe that's a way to think about how his strictly sort of theoretical posture on math can be separate from, um, let's call it like applied math or something in, in techno science. But, you know, I was going to ask you, like, what do you, you, you made reference to um, Deleuze's use of math. Mm. And that's, I think, super interesting, right? Like, like Deleuze has his math. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it's he's a, not anti-math. No, and it's, it's a different kind of math. It's not set theory, right? It's, it's something else. And, um, and so maybe that reflects on their different, you know, maybe that does reflect on the difference. Like, I, I'm somewhat invested in the argument that says that Badiou is... Um, to use kind of anachronistic language, perhaps, is that he's basically a digital philosopher, or at least he's he's sort of like very significantly committed to a digital philosophy that then also allows for a kind of dramatic break or abyss or sort of like violation of the coherency of the digital atomistic arithmetical series or whatever. Yeah, it seems like um the Deleuze version is much more about um, continuousness, right? Because Deleuze's math is calculus. Mm-hmm. That's his math. And that's the math of infinitesimals and continuous variations of functions and curves, you know, area under a curve, et cetera, et cetera. So, and like an old school calculus, like similarly critical of the arithmetic solutions to calculus. He, he doesn't want that approaching zero. He wants the absolute. He wants a real curve rather than a approximation of a curve. Yeah. That makes him pretty, pretty analog, I think, or at least in your terms, you've, you've made the argument that he's analog. Yeah. But, you know, for him, it's still about difference and differentiation, too. So it's not about like an analog wholeness or something, which, which might be the really romantic version of it. Yeah, totally. And I love, I mean, the, the sections in Difference and Repetition where he, Talks about, um, I mean, like the, the, you know, the, this is, this is the, like when the concept of the virtual first made sense for me was when he describes the virtual, like the, you know, if you virtualize a curve, you virtualize it in the tangent line, right? So you're sort of moving from one kind of technical space into an adjacent technical space. And that adjacent technical space is the virtual of the, of the first one. And I have to say that was a real revelation for me, particularly reading it at the time when virtual meant sort of like, you know, data gloves and like virtual reality or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's forever going to be translation or linguistic slippage problems with virtual being assumed to be you know, virtual reality simulation, mm. some sort of uh, world that isn't here that we're sort of creating, but has no reality to it. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, like, so uh, Raimon and Raimonian mm. space show up in A Thousand Plateaus mm -hmm. because he loves the idea. I mean, this comes in the basic definition of assemblage that, that him and DNG use too, where if you just add or subtract one element, it changes both the function, but the very essence or definition of what a thing is. Mm. Maybe Badiou is very familiar with this and perhaps wants to be on the other side. Like fidelity, what does fidelity mean to be have fidelity to an event and maintain a militant uh, position toward it? Whereas DNG will go, go about after 1968, sort of denouncing the sad militant. And I mean, no doubt this is coded language for the Maoist student groups and others in 68 who sort of, for them, seem to represent the party too much. And so, Badiou understands this moment, but is taking a very different strategic orientation. I think you can see it in the very strategies that they play out in their sort of divergent mathematical choices. Right. So, so can, can Deleuze think fidelity? That's a question. He can think love. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess he can think joy. And, and I mean, would you agree that, that the Deleuzean version? Yeah. What was, so what would the Deleuzean version of like political commitment be? Well, Maybe we can start with that first essay in negotiations. Oh, yeah. Letter to a Harsh Critic, which is many people's sort of first introduction to Deleuze. The context behind it is super interesting. Uh, some people don't read the context before they read the essay. So Deleuze had this student who was a gay militant who was initially sort of dedicated to him and wanted to write a book about him. Um, his name was uh, Croissol. And he... Uh, Deleuze like talks to him about it and apparently tells the student, don't write a book about me. What in the world are you doing writing a book about me? I'm not looking for acolytes or students. You know, I'm looking for people to blaze their own paths. Student does it anyway, but instead turns it into this enormous attempt to sort of dress down and critique Deleuze for having a bad faith relationship to marginals, which is to say always talking about them, but never becoming one. <laughs> and so I think it's in this very... Tension. Oh, and then he he invited Deleuze to maybe like exchange a few letters that get published at the end, but instead published it as the preface to the book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when like no good deed goes unpunished, you know? Oh my God. Like like yes. when Deleuze, speaking of what is philosophy, when it, it, I, I, that book is also like important for me because it's what it's um it's it's a place where Deleuze actually footnotes uh, Francois Laruelle, which is an unusual event in French philosophy. And so, you know, people are sort of used to take this as this kind of like this kind of like hat hat tip of the hat right that Deleuze was was making to someone who was certainly much less well known who was also working on like questions of imminence and stuff like that um and then Laruelle publishes this like letter to Deleuze in this obscure little journal that he was working on that's just like basically like fuck you how dare you footnote me you know like how how dare you sir <laughs> <laughs> so no, no good deed goes unpunished. But, but maybe that's it. Maybe that is fidelity. Because, I mean, Deleuze is an old school Nietzschean. And if you remember from um, Thus by Zarathustra, mm. you know, the model for apprenticeship or of knowledge is, okay, you know, you are first the baby and you realize with humility, you know nothing. But then there's the camel in which you dedicate to someone else as their apprentice. But then that's not all you do. If you get stuck there, you're not yet sort of doing real creative work or, or philosophy. Then you turn into the lion where you break with them 
and you blaze your own path. That's good. And I think that's it. I think I think he I think commitment and fidelity for him is not keeping at the camel stage. I think it's everyone becomes a lion. You have to become singular. You have to find your own approach. And maybe that's the anarcho libertine problem that Badu has with it. You know, it just becomes herding cats or herding roots or herding potatoes. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll, this is something we'll have to explore over the course of multiple episodes is what ultimately is Badu's relationship to anarchism and anarchists. Yeah. In thinking, but also in, in life. And, you know, I mean, I have this, like, this, like, this, like crackpot theory about Deleuze, which is, you know, like, you know, the, the, um, what is it? The, the Baudrillard book called Forget Foucault. So my crackpot theory about Deleuze is that, is that you can only really have like a binary stance on Deleuze. You're either like a Deleuze fan, Mm -hmm. right? So you're like Brian Masumi, or you have to basically tell lies about Deleuze. You have to basically invert him into this like opposite world world version that makes no sense. Right. So like Badiou in Badiou's book on Deleuze, he basically says like, tries to argue that Deleuze is secretly a Platonist, which like makes no sense to me, but that's because Badiou's a Platonist. You know, Zizek writes his book on Deleuze. It's, you know, a pretty smart, clever book, but he tries to convince us all that Deleuze is a Hegelian, which also makes no sense if you read much Deleuze. Um, And so, I don't know, I kind of love that, that, that Deleuze, for whatever reason, he, he creates almost this like intellectual vortex where you can't actually almost critique him or something. You have to either accept it or sort of violently tell lies about it. And so I wonder actually if Baudrillard has the right idea that Deleuze can only be forgotten. <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's like the, the best stance on Deleuze. The, the, the best, the best like compliment to give Deleuze will be to forget him. Maybe that's where we have to go from here. You know, two people have perhaps read a little more Deleuze than anyone needs to. Uh, forget Deleuze, maintain our fidelity to Badiou, and see not how, you know, I was reading uh, uh, Rhizome earlier today, as I said, like um, not to find the way in which nature or science has progressed reason, kind of the way in which D&G do as an alternative to dialectics, but to see what set theory has really given philosophy in a way that you know, the analytic philosophers have taken in one direction, but Badiou is obviously taking it in another and to follow it, see what's unique, see what's novel, see what you can only think through a commitment to this form of reason. Not that Set's theory itself necessarily has the answer, but almost like the medieval trivium in which if you study grammar, logic, and rhetoric, then you will be a agile, rigorous, forceful thinker. Maybe we're at our point where we need to see what math can do for thought. How can how we can philosophize with math and make ourselves a new form of militant? So we began with this sort of grudge match between Badiou and Deleuze. And I think it's clear that they're pretty incompatible on a lot of things. And that took us to this strange realization that they might actually be speaking in a, I don't know, similar language using similar terms. Um, and to explore some of these questions, we actually turn to two philosophers who know a lot about Bedieu, Deleuze, Spinoza, and the French intellectual scene, um, David Marazella and Gil Morahan. And among other things, they are the co-translators of a new volume of writing by the philosopher Alexandre Mataron. 
and we'll link to both of them in the episode notes. All right, great. Uh, welcome, David Marazella and Gil Morahan. Um, David, let's begin with you, maybe. Um, Alan Bedu writes being an event during the 1980s when the question of truth was definitively in crisis. And, you know, postmodernism, postmodernist theory didn't really want to talk about truth anymore. So maybe you can fill us in on some of the context around philosophy of science and epistemology in France in the post-war period. Um, what is the status of truth in 1988? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing that's maybe not clear to Anglophone readers of being an event is actually that I think the book fits into a very strong and prominent tradition of thinking about truth um, and the history of, of truth and the history of science um, that comes out of France. Um, it's perhaps waning a bit in the, yeah, the sort of 80s period, um, but at least from kind of the early 20th century up until the 60s and 70s, there's a very well-known and actually kind of institutionalized um, tradition of epistemology and philosophy of science in France. And the main question that's getting worked on um, throughout this, this sort of period um, is the question of the historicity of truth um, and, and, and sort of by implication, the history um, of scientific truth. Um, and the basic problem and the, the basic innovation, I think, that comes out of um, the thinkers working in what some people call the French historical epistemological tradition is an attempt to sort of marry a sensitivity to history and change, historical change, with a strong conception of truth. So it's not historicism, actually, like quite the opposite. It's more the idea that scientific truth is scientific and objective precisely because it's historically variable, um, which is not the same, I think, as historic, historicism or relativism. It's not mm -hmm. the same as the kinds of things you see in the, the sort of parallel tradition in, in Anglo-American philosophy, like in people like Thomas Kuhn, mm -hmm. Paul Feyerabend, who are also kind of working on the same question. Um, more pragmatic. More pragmatic. The real innovation that's being worked on in France, um, again, in a tradition that's not very popular in the sense of known to the public. These are um, institutional figures. These are um, sort of more, yeah, sort of more academic, a bit more dry um, figures in the, and less known figures in the history of French philosophy, but pass on to Bedu um, this interest in trying to resolve um, this sort of classical tension um, between scientific truth, which, mm. you know, to caricature someone like Plato is supposed to be universal and immutable and eternal and the fact that science clearly evolves historically. So how to sort of balance these two sides. So it's, it's a kind of elegant compromise maybe between um, pulling back from a, from, I don't know, universal truth in the classical sense. Yet Bedu also wants to say that truth may be rigorously defined, uh, staunchly defended, um, but it's not universal because it's inherently bound to subjects. Is that an accurate description? I think so, except I suspect that Badiou is still very much committed to the, the sort of value of universality. Um, I mean, which Hill, I think, kind of rebrand under this name of the generic. Um, yeah. 
I'm not sure that the what he calls the generic and universality have the same sort of valences. Yeah. But I think that's actually sort of like what's interesting about him and his sort of wager is like, actually, no, universality is still salvageable, even though it has to be sort of indexed to subjects, um, even if truths are eventual and sort of fragile um, and all the other sort of things he builds into it. Um, but I think he's really trying to think notions of truth, universality, um, these sorts of classical notions, infinity, um, mm. but sort of after they've been deconstructed and, you know, sort of burned, you know, alive, you know, what's left of truth and universality. And Badiou says, well, actually, like there is something left and the, the concepts actually aren't totally, um, you know, unworkable. Right. So maybe we can bring Gill in as well. How does Spinoza figure in these discussions? Um, both of you, Gill and David, you recently co-translated um, André Maturin, one of the key interpreters of Spinoza in post-war France. So how do you understand this dynamic or maybe even a kind of pitched battle between Badiou and Spinoza? Yeah, pitched battle is nice. Uh, and before we started recording, you said, I think rightly, that part of what seems to be going on in Badiou's engagement with Spinoza in the Meditation 10 of being an event is like a proxy war with uh, Deleuze in particular, it seems to me, uh, for whom Spinoza is a key reference point uh, from the earliest works. Uh, but their, their readings of and appropriations from Spinoza are really different. Though Spinoza is interesting for Badiou's purposes, I think, because they're so, uh, they're such fellow travelers in some ways. Uh, they're both um, you know, they both see mathematics as this thing that actually has and has further potential to uh, liberate humanity from superstition. Um, Spinoza says this in like the appendix to book one of the ethics, like explicitly is like, we would have been stuck in superstition forever if we hadn't discovered mathematics, right? Which is a kind of amazing line. Yeah, I'm sort of, I'll, uh, like Baju, like uh, David, and uh, I think like the two of you, I am a friend of truth. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's not, you know, the, the sort of formal apparatus of Spinoza's great work, The Ethics, is more geometrico. It's demonstrated in geometric order. And I think that's non-arbitrary. I think that there is a claim there that the metaphysics um, that he wants to lay out can only adequately be expressed in a sort of mathematical or rigorously logical a chain of deductions and argumentation. At the same time, there's clearly something about Spinoza that Badiou can only have problems with, right? There's like a couple of points where there seem to be issues. Um, yeah, how would you characterize that? There's something about a kind of flattening. Yeah, I, th I think that there's like three or four ways to articulate this. Um, the most technical version of which is that in, in, in Badiou's like formal terminological like jargon, right? Like uh, Spinoza identifies structure and superstructure or uh, flattens out the difference between belonging and inclusion. Um, and we could talk about whether or not I, so I think that this has got to be right on one level, but I'm also not totally sure that it's quite as simple as that. Uh, but I think the three more kind of intuitively intelligible ways of making sense of the problem that Badiou has with Spinoza is that he seems to foreclose three things, three categories that he thinks any genuine ontology needs to have in a robust way. He forecloses the void, he forecloses the subject, and he forecloses the event. Um, in 
the case of the event, I think, yeah, that's just that seems like it's just got to be true, right? I think like whatever else is true about Spinoza, uh, we don't get eventual ruptures where in which like being as such changes somehow, or there is this kind of novel uh, rupture. Uh, I don't think that that's possible for Spinoza. Is that because uh, substance is infinite? It's because of the way in which, and Budgie's going to have trouble here too, problems here too. Uh, uh, being or substance has to have a consistency, kind of that's like pertains to itself. Um, whereas, like you know, Budgie wants to say that being qua being is inconsistent multiplicity, uh, which is presented as a one in account that makes it that makes it consistent, right? Again, I think like that's tr that's right, and also I want I want to hesitate a little bit. I think I just think Spinoza is a little more complicated than he gives him credit for. Sorry, oh, I was just going to bring in the problem of imminence, right? It seems like the battle is really around yeah, yeah. imminence. Um, Bedu doesn't really have much time for identity for collapsing the different layers of the system. Um, you know, he says one of his problems with Spinoza. Uh, this is from Baidu. Everything that belongs is included and everything that is included belongs. And for Baidu, that's just, you know, horrific, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. is it, so what about imminence? And and also even more broadly, the question of imminence in this post-war period in France, you know, there's other, uh, there's a sort of return to Spinoza. It's not just Deleuze, it's Macheret and even Althusser and others. Um so yeah, other thoughts about this this Spinoza's moment and the question of imminence, the, the kind of battle over imminence. Yeah, uh, well, like I said, at the letter of the text in the meditation, it's it's sort of surprising, right? Like I think what you might have expected, what I certainly expected uh, when I went to pick it up, would be that we would have a discussion of like the the absent event, the absent of the absence of the event in Spinoza. But he doesn't talk about that at all. He talks about the 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 missing void, right? The absence of void. But then what he moved, what he does is moves to show that uh, the void does get named, kind of in spite of Spinoza's best efforts in the form of what he calls infinite modes, right? And so there's, and like this is a really interesting place to focus on uh, in in part one of the ethics, like propositions twenty one, twenty two, and twenty eight. You have these like invocations of infinite modes that follow immediately from the infinite, the absolutely infinite nature of God, and uh, which then produce other immediate infinite modes and so on. This seems weird, right? We generally think of modes as being finite uh, and substance as being infinite. And so this is something that seems to be bridging a gap. And it does sort of seem like uh, Spinoza needs this concept somehow to explain the transition from the absolute infinity of substance to finite modes in the causal nexus or in the chain. But then it's not clear how that's supposed to work, right? Anything infinite can only produce something infinite, right? We have this sort of like, um, this, you know, this is a classic problem in, in theology, right? Like this, uh, uh, incommensurability between the infinity of the creation or the creator and the finite character of creation. Uh, and that's, this is like the place where that reappears in Spinoza, maybe in spite of himself. And so Badu's like, look at, here it is, the errancy of the void. You thought you got rid of it. Right. Which, which Badu finds a solution to in, in Cantor and the different sizes of yeah. infinity for him. That's a sort of mathematical yeah. demonstration of uh, you know, metaphysical incompatibility, right? Um, yeah. David, maybe we can bring you in here as well. I know you've worked a lot on Louis Althusser and Etienne Balabar, and they're both also part of this kind of um, conversation around scientific Marxism and Spinoza as well. So yeah, what, what's your, what are your thoughts about 
that dynamic? Yeah, I think um, I think Spinoza here really like is a is a key uh, figure. Um, just a historical sort of tidbit. Um, Bedi's master's thesis was on Spinoza, on Spinoza's politics, I think, um, in the 50s, um, which was actually kind of an unusual topic for the time because the sort of, um, yeah, Spinoza wasn't really seen so much in France at that time as a political thinker. Um, in fact, and, and some of this still continues into the scholarship about French Spinozism today, there's this almost this kind of like ideas if Spinoza only wrote the ethics and the treatise on the emendation of the intellect, and people forget that he wrote two books like two pretty big books about politics too. And that it's not just like, it's not pure epistemology and rationalism. It's also that, and this, you know, um, political um, sort of interventions as well. Um, But he wrote the, the master's thesis on Spinoza's politics with Georges Canguilhem, who was one of the sort of famous philosophers of science I was sort of alluding to without naming in the first part of what I said. Um, And so really there is this kind of, um, yeah, underground current, to use the Althusserian term, at the time that I think that you still continuing in a way today that is sort of reactivating certain things in Spinoza, combining it with the, this, this new historiography in science um, that, that he was sort of raised on um, in France, um, but that people turned on. So, I mean, when you read people like Michel Serre and Bruno Latour, this is what they're attacking. They're attacking um, this, this rationalist mm. um, French uh, tradition in the philosophy of science. And propose, you know, proposing this sort of more sociological position, and Badiou, I think, is really sort of reinventing that, um, you know, re sort of thinking that in in the '80s and up until till the present. Um, you know, I think that's the kind of like battle, ideological battle he's waging. Um, are these philosophers who were trained in the philosophy of science who then turned on the rationalist tradition, who turned on the sort of spinism, on Bachelard, on Congulem, on these kinds of figures, mm-hmm. and went more into this kind of science studies sociology route. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think, I mean, Bedi is really picking up on things that, um, I mean, I think his real yeah. sort of, for me, I think one of his real precursors is someone like Althusser, um, as you mentioned, um, because I think this was also Althusser's project. Um, Althusser's project was to combine Spinoza um, with a very, very idiosyncratic reading of Marx, um, which is unpalatable to uh, nearly every Marxist. Um, <laughs> and then idiosyncratic. Com- <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and then combine it, um, as people know pretty well, too, with these lesser-known figures in the philosophy of science that he cites um, constantly. Um, but the the goal there, I think, you know, is very similar to Badiou. It's this idea that was to say that the innovation of Marx isn't just to simply say that you know, human social existence is historical, again, a sort of like, you know, very uninteresting historicism, or to kind of take the hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, whatever the recur phrases, uh, masters of suspicion approach, where you just say, oh, Mark shows that, you know, behind our sort of seemingly, you know, um, mundane human social transactions is actually this sort of evil, invisible um, economic structure secretly pulling the strings. Althusser's reading of Marx is to say, no, Marx introduces concepts. He's a conceptual sort of laborer. He produces concepts that allow us to make reality intelligible in a new way and to understand the social fabric as it really is. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Althusser sort of puts on the table um, a historically sensitive rationalism and realism um, that that also then gets sort of taken up by Badiou. 
and sort of updated in ways that I don't think Althusser could have done mm. um, by bringing in these, you know, much more cutting edge um, advances in in mathematics and 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 other sciences that Althusser just just didn't really know. Well, but you would also want want to add to this sort of picture that we get with Althusser's sort of scientific approach to Marxism or idea of Marxism as a science, something like a subject, right? He thinks that this, the subject as an operator, as like a militant, as something with like a fidelity is missing, right? And do you think that that's like tr true? Do you think that's true for Althusser as a spinazist? <laughs> no, I think actually the addition of the 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 notion of the subject in Badiou is actually really a much it was like much neat. I don't think he's solving like this sort of huge absence in Althusser's work, but I think he's picking up on something that Althusser was in his own way touching on. Um, and to sort of link it back to the earlier discussion, I, I think what makes the the doctrine of the subject embed you really interesting um, is that it proposes a, a nice solution to a problem, um, a philosophical problem that I think is actually still plaguing tons of people um, I would actually say right now, mainly in analytic philosophy um, and analytic philosophy after people like Kuhn and Firebend, um, which is this idea of everyone seems to agree that scientific change is incommensurable and eventual in this in this sort of thing. Um, I mean, basically after like Popper and Kuhn in the English speaking tradition, like that's pretty much a given. Um, however, none of those thinkers resolve the question of how it is that an incommensurable new scientific theory appears and then stands in a relationship to rational superiority with respect to what it replaces. Mm. This is why like sort of Anglophone analytic philosophy in a way, as Badiou points out essentially at the beginning of being an event, falls mm. into sort of like linguistic relativism. Because um, mm. coming out with, coming, coming after people like Kuhn, Rorty, um, all these sorts of people, it just becomes a sort of language game um you know excuse of like oh well you know mm. galileo and newton and einstein are just different language games and and bad use i think theory of this subject and, and theory of truth in the event is meant to say sure they're they're different like you know systems of concept but they have different rational standing with respect to one another mm. um and there is a rational superiority of of one over the other um but the I think the theory of the subject allows you to explain how it can be produced, because the problem is that precisely in the moment that the new theory appears, there's actually no criteria and no means available for validating its its truth claims. This is Badiou's whole point. When when new uh, scientific truth emerges or political um, events, nothing that's currently available in the encyclopedia mm -hmm. allows you to verify it. It's actually completely it's indiscernible. And the, the beauty of the theory of the subject is to say that something indiscernible can emerge, but then can be in the future through a process of fidelity actualized mm. and then retrospectively made valid so that we can then mm. say in the moment, we couldn't decide mm. why Einstein was more rational and superior to Newtonian physics. But the further elaboration of the science made forced that to be real and now we we retrospectively look back and say and here's why and we we after the fact we construct the means necessary to make this rational difference available whereas most epistemologists i think in philosophers of science working today just go with the language game thing and just like no they're different and um 
you know, maybe we'll get a different one later on. And but that's about all we can say, because we don't want to be metaphysical and, and have say anything about the superiority of one theory over another or, or that sort of thing. So does that kind of Kuhn tradition therefore lead to just almost like power politics, right? Like um, the superior theory is the one that that coalesces enough followers or something like that. And that's, I think, explicitly what what Badiou wants to Mm -hmm. Badiou wants to have a contestational fabric of society. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want it to be just sort of like the raw aggregate, you know, um, encounter of like powerful forces of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, to be sort of fair to Kuhn, I don't think he would, you know, accept any of this, but he opens the door to this, I would say. Someone like Fireband runs with this. Like this is, this is what Fireband is saying, um, you know, in the 80s. I mean, he's writing things saying like, look, if you can get, if you can get people to get on board, like this is one essay where he says something like, look, like three cheers for creationists in California who made it so that creationism and evolution are taught side by side because what we don't want is the dogma of scientific theory. So, you know, we should be happy that someone is balancing it. And so as long as- If I may, if I may, boo. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck that guy. (laughs) He gives anarchism a bad name. Yeah, it's- it's Epistemological anarchism. No, it's really bad. And I mean, it- there's so many presuppositions that are, I think, like completely untenable um, about it. Like, I mean, one thing I love about Badiou, Althusser, this sort of more rationalist tradition um, in France is that I think in their own way, but without saying it, they're really contesting this sort of legacy that we get from, let's say, Nietzsche through phenomenology and through Frankfurt School up to today, which is this presupposition, which I personally think is like it's empirically false. Like it's a, it's a verifiable claim that we live in a world dominated by rationality and science. Like I just, this is an, this is an empirically testable claim and I think it's false. Um, but I think, you know, like easily now a hundred years of, of sort of continental friendly philosophers have just like eaten this up. Mm. Um, and what's really nice about someone like Althusser and Badiou is I don't, I don't think they, they don't, they just don't go in this, I don't think they actively argue against this, but I think they know that this is not true. Mm. Um, they're still of the opinion that rationality and truth is very rare. Uh, it, mm. It's not what we're doing all the time. Hence why mm. it would be dominant. It's very, very rare. In this context, like Spinoza, again, makes for a really good fellow traveler for this sort of project, right? I mean, Spinoza is one of the high rationalists. He's an absolute rationalist, you could say, uh, for whom like reality itself is structured according to like the dictates or, or strictures of, of reason, of rational, um, of rational sequence. But that's not the same as making the claim that like subjects are reasonable or that they understand that rational order or they understand themselves. Uh, you know, in fact, it seems for Spinoza that uh, very, like you said, very difficult and rare. Like that's the, the last line, the last words of the ethics are difficilia and in and rara, right? And, the, and he's talking about like acceding to a kind of knowledge or understanding as this like very very uncommon thing. So we get on the one hand, this sort of uh, extraordinarily rigorous rationalist commitment at the level of like metaphysics, and then subjectively in account of the obscurity, confusion, sadness that, you know, dominates most of our everyday lives um, for the most part. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I like this line of yours, David, right? That uh, 
you know, the claim that like actually the problem with modern society is its dominance by rationality is uh, I, I just actually don't know what anyone's talking about. I, I see I see confusion all over the place. The point that we've come to here is that Badiou is absolutely a partisan for truth. But as we've been talking about, you know, maybe a, a sort of affinity with Spinoza, no matter how much he's he's combating it, that it's a truth that is not already known or that people have to just sort of um, accede to or accept, but it's obscure and it's rare. And that means that it's really an intervention to be an advocate of truth for Badiou rather than simply trying to make people sort of... Uh, a seed to it in the way that maybe people imagine science works, or at least the way anti-vaxxers are currently saying, you know, science works and, you know, Dr. Fauci and everything like bad news, not Dr. Fauci here. Yeah. I, there's like a, I'm sorry. If I, if I could, there's a, that's really great. There's a line uh, that, that Baju cites by Spinoza. I think it's not in the meditation. I think it's in the other, the other essay. There's the Spinoza's closed ontology, which I think is published both in the short treatise and in the theoretical writings volume. Uh, he cites this line by Spinoza, which is the scolium, from the scolium to Proposition 23 of Part 5 of the Ethics, where Spinoza says, The eyes of the mind by which it sees and observes things are the demonstrations themselves. Are the demonstrations themselves. Which is, again, this sort of like identity of understanding and the thing known in this really arch-rationalist way. But what he doesn't mention is the context. The scolium is about this weird set of claims that Spinoza makes toward the end of the ethics about what it looks like to get to what he calls the third kind of knowledge. Uh, talk about difficult and rare. Uh, this sort of what he sometimes also calls intellectual love of God or uh, scientia intuitiva or intuitive science, um, cognition of singular things. Um, and... What the blockage is, the thing that gets in the way there is, among other things, memory. And so he's trying to talk about what it would mean to understand something absent memory. And this is, again, like paradoxical and strange, um, where on the one hand, like, that's a historical truth that needs to be understood, like, but not durationally somehow, right? Like, a subspecies eternitatis under the aspect of eternity, it's, it is and isn't subjective. It is and isn't durational. Uh, but like you said, like, you know, all of our kind of baggage that we've got about what we think science means gets in the way of our grasping this truth uh, in the in the in the moment. Um, it sort of is a both and in a, in a difficult in a way that's difficult to articulate. I'm not sure I'm doing it justice. It's interesting because because memory doesn't strike me as a as a big concept in Badiou, but fidelity is right. And maybe yeah, yeah, fidelity yeah. is how Badiou deals with a kind of retrospective glance or a, or a relation to one's own past. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about it too, in the context of what David was saying before, like to make a Einsteinian break, you have to forget the Galilean orthodoxy or something like this, right? Like that's the, this like memorial chain that blocks the emergence of a truth for a time or something. That's good. That's good. So maybe one last little cluster of questions around, you know, you said difficult and rare. Um, it, there's a cartoon version of Deleuze, right? That that around the event that uh, for Deleuze events are ubiquitous, right? So the 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 cells cells dividing our events and the acid in your stomach breaking down, you know, food is an event, and 
Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, for Bedu, he's like the Cecil B. DeMille of philosophy because everything is the big event. It has to be the storming of the Winter Palace. It has to be Cantor inventing the diagonalization proof, something like that. So how do we, um, you know, I want to hear from both of you around this question of the event. Should we side with Badiou's superlative event over and above a more mundane one? I can start and, and say, I find, again, this is another part of Bedu that, that I do personally find compelling. Um, when you read back through, you know, 20th century French thought, you see this sort of like ruptural sort of event language is pretty common. Um, you know, and you find it in all of Badiou's contemporaries. You find it in Rancière. You find it in, um, you know, all these sorts of guys. Um, they they get it from Althusser, who in turn got it from Bachelard, um, and all developed in the context of science, just to, to think this idea of sort of radical discontinuity in science, but that can also be, but that's also intelligible. Um, again, to, just to link it back to the first thing I was talking about, I think this is the main core tradition that Badiou is working within, this idea that there can be radical change in forms of thought and being, but that they're intelligible and that these, and, and that the changes aren't just arbitrary. Um, and, and, and the intelligibility of those changes is particularly in the case of science, but I think also politics um, and other things is, you know, what makes these values sort of worth fighting for, um, you know, that, that, that there can be a political rupture that will bring about some kind of social order that will not only be different, but better like dare I say, more rational than what we've than what's previously um, existed. Um, it won't be clear in the moment of its happening, because in the moment of its happening, it will risk being assimilated to the current order. Um, Bad you talks about this kind of thing a lot. It'll just look like another protest or another mm. demonstration or another. But the 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 sort of temporality of fidelity makes it so that it could turn out that this will have been. A very meaningful event that in the moment in the present people were just like oh you know um whatever it's just another you know another sort of ordinary thing um and so i mean i think the event for bed is also you know we'd have to take into account the way he defines it formally undecidable in the very strict sort of like gerdelian sense um that he deals with it um in the other person to sort of throw them under the bus with your your characterization, uh, Alex, would be Derrida, um, because this is Derrida too. Um, I think kind of on the same level as Deleuze, which is that in Derrida's sort of ontology, um, people get mad at me when I say that Derrida has an ontology, but I think he does. But it's an <laughs> ontology of the undecidable, which is that everything is undecidable in Derrida. Hence, why you can get these sort of classic Derridian formulations of you forgive the unforgivable, like. All yeah. the time, every day, you give the ungivable gift at yeah. all, you know, all the time, you know. Um, and so it makes it so that the structure of undecidability, I think in Derrida ultimately just got, gets wrapped up with temporality. It just means that because the future is open, you can't, you're, the decision that you make in the moment is potentially open to being undone in the future, hence making it undecidable. Um, I certainly don't think that's what Badiou means by it. Um, he means that. He means much more, I think, sort of formally this idea that from the perspective of the situation that you're in, there are some statements that can be generated that can't be, yeah, sort of processed according to the, the logic that's available, which is then brings about the rest of the apparatus, which is that you can make them valid if you produce further 
circumstances and means of verification through fidelity and whatnot in the act of the subject that will make these presently undecidable statements truthful at some later point. But that requires changing the whole structure and situation of knowledge and thinking and being and everything to make new conditions where these undecidable claims can then be, you know, meaningful and intelligent. I think that's important. I like that a lot. There's like a, it's so I, I understand why people get mad at you when you talk about there being an ontology of the undecidable in Derrida. I get, I think I get that. I, because personally, I think, I mean, I, I tend to think of it more as like a, a distinction between the two Baji Derrida on whether or not this undecidability is a transcendental structure in the strong sort of Kantian sense of it being like an ineliminable feature of cognition uh, for us, or if it is something that pertains in a more kind of historically localizable way to right, this like historicity of truth or historical a priori, right? Where like um, for Derrida, it does to me sometimes seem that like he wants to make this claim, uh, but as something that, like you said, pertains to every situation, like no matter what, in almost the same formal way, formally in the same kind of way. Whereas for Bajia, it's as though the historicity of the transcendental is that, you know, the, the structure of presentation is a historically variable thing, which means different kinds of claims can be generated that have this undecidable character, depending on the moment that we're in. And then the event names this rupture, this move from one kind of historical a priori to another. Do, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, because, yeah, I think in, in something like Derrida, it's more sort of, yeah, typical, though he obviously is extremely interested in sort of changing the status of the transcendental. It's sort of the more typical, yeah, sort of Kantian take on it. But, it, but in Badiou, the idea is that the undecidable, there's going to be undecidables that are specific to each situation. Mm, yeah. So you can't just generate, like, and I think, again, this, this is interesting on how he fits into these sort of more rationalist, again, I would even dare call it like sort of Hegelian tradition in the French philosophy of science, which is to say that I don't think any situation can just produce any old undecidable statement. It's that, that specific situations produce specific undecidables. That might be to like sort of right. put, that might make it a little too teleological and sort of put, you know, future truths already at work in a, you know, in the present situation. I don't know if that's sort of reading into be it. Be careful. But I, You're identifying yeah. belonging and inclusion. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I think that's kind of the idea is that like, certain situations will give rise to their own sort of site-specific um, undecidables. Yeah, I think that's right. And to go back to what your initial question was about, uh, Alex, the, like, I think that uh, at the avant right, like event, uh, it wasn't that much of a cartoon caricature of Deleuze that you painted. I think that that's basically right about uh, the way that he talks about it. Um, you know, it's an event that the, the, the tree greens or whatever. Um, in logic of sense. But there is a name for something much closer to what Bajie means by the event in Deleuze, and that's the encounter. Um, and the encounter, I think, right? Where like some, like the language that Deleuze will use is something like from, like something comes from the outside, which is um, unintelligible from within the structures of intelligibility to which we're like habituated thus far or something like this, which forces a reorganization. And so that sounds a lot more like what I think what Baji means by the event, whether or not it has 
some of these same formal technical um, determinations that Baju is very precise about. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I think that if you wanted to look for like a, a like a rapprochement between the two, you'd want to go to the encounter and, and leave the leave Deleuze's events off to the side because they're a little too ubiquitous. And I think with David, that there's something valuable about right holding open a space for a thought of a fundamental reorganization as a historical occurrence or happening that's outside of the sort of everyday, uh, the everyday way that things go and are in, are intelligible. So what I'm hearing is maybe the big distinguishing factor for Badiou is maybe a question of empiricism where he really doesn't want it at all. I mean, this goes back <laughs> to the classic debate between mathematicians and physicists. Mathematicians say, we don't even need the physical, you know, uh, phenomenal world at all. And we're just looking at these basic, formal, rigorous structures that really need no expression. And so, you know, that not only puts him in a very far distance from Deleuze, from which it's almost like a sensation or breaking habit, like all these very classical sort of empiricist ideas. And of course, he calls it like a transcendental empiricism, right? Um, but then maybe even it gives him a slight distance from this French philosophy of science tradition that's still trying to figure out precisely what science is. Does it have empirical characteristics? Like, Bachelard trying to put together rationalism and empiricism in his own sort of way. And so I suppose this makes Badiou like really yeah. to try and put math in a newer, different status, but still at some separation from the analytic tradition, which is starting to sort of dominate a certain version of philosophy at the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good um, comment and set of questions, Andrew. I mean, I'm trying to think back to, you know, what, I think Bedu talks about this a little bit right at the beginning of being an event of, you know, the first volume where he says, I mean, doesn't he say something kind of like, you guys remember better than me, does he say kind of something like, look, the, the problem of how um, mathematics, like, you know, fits in with the physical world is just a non-problem. Um, <laughs> he says something, you know, kind of like this. He's, um, and maybe that is actually like more, um, I mean, I wonder if like the physicists today would be like, yeah, exactly. Like that's what we've, you know, um, the whole point is that like physics just is also mathematics. Um, yeah. and this is something that like um, uh, Koi Ray was saying, this is sort of Koi big thesis in the 20th century that, you know, people like Lacan and others picked up on um, that, you know, modern science of Galileo just is mathematics. Um, mm -hmm. um, and there's a really wonderful text by Koi Ray. I think it's called like, maybe something like on Platonism and Aristotelianism in physics. And he says, look, like, Modern science is the the victory of Galileo over his you know competitors, and that means it's the vindication of Platonism against mm -hmm. Aristotelianism. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think Badiou is sort of willing to go that route. I mean, um, and say yeah. And, and this is also something. I mean, Althusser even says this too. And actually, in re reading Capital, um, he says something like, "Look, um, and this is part of this sort of very internalist." like the sort of analytic term, internalist, like internal cohesiveness, rationalism that he espouses, which is he says something like, look, um, like, I think he says the mathematician, I think he says the mathematician never waits for the physicist to like test anything um, to know if their, their ideas are correct. Um, but I think the same is true for the physicist, like insofar as the physicist might now just be a mathematician, like the physicist doesn't need to wait for um, you know, someone to like verify something. It's if the math works, the math, you know, the math works. If there can be verifications, that's great. Um, 
but those verifications usually tend, you know, much uh, tend to arrive much later, um, and are just sort of the icing on the cake. Um, one other, there was two other quick things I wanted to mention. One was maybe someone else remembers it, but thinking about Kant and the, the transcendental and those sort of things that we were mentioning, there's something I think that you says in the second volume of Being an Event. Not to sort of jump ahead, but he says something like, you know, Kant is the philosopher that I least identify with. He says something like, I just never understand what Kant's talking about, and I never understand <laughs> what this whole thing about like the sort of juridical priority of the transcendental is supposed to mean. Um, and I think, yeah, that would be another way to think about maybe the difference, like the different way that undecidable plays in in someone like um in in Badiou, it doesn't have sort of transcendental character because. I don't think Bedu finds anything particularly helpful about the sort of classical sense of transcendental as mm. a priori sort of juridical um, structures within which being, you know, appears. Um, which, which are validated in- intuitively, right? And it, and it yeah. seems like Bedu has such an attraction to um, the axiomatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it has to be, the beginning has to be axiomatic. It can't be. Um, grounded in intuition, because maybe there's a sort of lingering, I don't know, empirical like mm-hmm. mojo to intuition, right? Yeah, yeah. And this also is the the this is another way of cleaving the 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 uh, Baju to, to lose difference, right? Like which mathematics are they drawn to, right? And like uh, no, but for De, for Deleuze, like the math. The, the math that's interesting is the, well, this is true for how he approaches the history of philosophy as much as the history of the sciences and the history of mathematics. He always like wants to go to the roads not taken and see what they might still have to offer. And so in his particular case, like this is what he does in Difference and Repetition. He repeats it a little bit in uh, A Thousand Plateaus with uh, Guattari. Uh, like he, he wants to go to like the differential calculus. Um, and what's interesting about that in particular for him is that, you know, if you, you know, the, by the middle of the 20th century, we get a rigorous account of like an algebraized, al- algebraization of, uh, of the, the differential calculus with, you know, Robinson's non-standard analysis and so forth. Uh, but that's not what he likes. That's not the thing that he thinks is cool. What he thinks is cool is that there was something like an intuition of in indiscernible or vanishing magnitude in you know starting in the 1600s uh that wouldn't be shown to be rigorous actually uh there's like really interesting stuff on um uh like math marx has these mathematical manuscripts where he talks about this and when he's like talking about leibniz's procedure for the infinitesimal he calls it the mystical variant of the of the the differential calculus and that's the part that deleuze likes right there's like an intuitive character to it it's tied in this curious way to like the dialectic between i don't know sensation and the formation of an idea and Baju's just like can we please rigorously axiomatize this can we please like can we? i thought we were trying to get like to the scientific core here and it's not clear that you're ever going to be able to bridge the gap to lose the way that you you i don't know if he wants to or not right he sees something else going on there in a sort of creative mode that i'm not sure that Baju just thinks is the right way to pose these questions about truth and subjective fidelity. And Gil, maybe one thing, you know, um, you have thoughts on this, and this is like a Deleuze sort of thing too, is that, um, you know, there's there's kind of this mathematical philosophy conflict that 
takes place kind of like an un uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's kind of like a missed encounter, maybe in a way in in French thought, which happens. It's probably in the 30s between Jean Cavaillès and Albert Lotman. Um, and Lotman yeah, is you know cited by Deleuze pretty early. I mean, Deleuze might even be one of the first people to kind of like discover Lotman after he um, after both both are killed in in World War II. Cavaillès and Lotman. Um, Cavaillès gets a sort of much larger sort of second like life afterlife in French thought, um, and mainly because of people like Althusser and Canguilhem and others um, who really rally around him, also as a Spinozist too. Um, but th there's a debate between the two of them. Um, I'm not sure if it's been, actually it might be translated on the, the Urbanomics site um, because they just also redid the Cavaillus translation, which is really, you know, long overdue. Um, yeah. but, you know, there's sort of conflicts between Cavaillus and Lotman. Um, and I wonder if that maybe is sort of a restaging of like what happens between someone like Bedu and Deleuze, even though Bedu does talk about Lotman at the beginning of um, uh, being an event. Um, but I think, you know, in that debate in the, in the 30s, you know, um, Lotman is sort of more like Platonist Heideggerian about mathematics and Cavaillus, you know, it's just like, well, I don't think that's going to work, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> that's probably not going to, you know, that just doesn't pan out with what's actually happening. Um, yeah, I don't have too much to add to that uh or to speak to it in particular but i will say that like um deleuze has a marked preference of amongst these two for lautman i think you're definitely right and uh that testifies maybe to some of the lingering heideggerianism in deleuze's thought that makes him uh difficult for me to get fully on board with and i don't know how much more i can say than that lingering heideggerianism in deleuze you don't know about I think this, what does that mean? <laughs> I just don't even know what that sentence means. I'm intrigued. Uh, uh, I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, well, yeah, let's, this is going to take us off in a whole other direction, but I think that there is something to it. I think there is something to it. Um, in spite of all, uh, I think that there is, well, the, the sort of, uh, is it, is it Cavaillas? Yeah, it's Cavaillas, right? Who makes this sort of uh, distinction or cleavage between like the philosophers of the concept and the philosophers of experience. Um, and Deleuze wants to ride the line, but I find him falling over into uh, the the experience, the philosophers of, of consciousness side of things more often than I think he wants to. I think he wants to not do that. Um, but I mean, and in this, I guess, you know, neither, so, so too Heidegger, right? He wants to, to get away from experience and do a sort of different, uh, thing uh, on the basis of initial starting po uh, points that have to do with, uh, you know, what the, the mode of the givenness of being is. But I'm not sure that we can actually, I'm not sure that we ever actually get to the rationalism of the concept if we begin there. I'm not sure that that ever actually does work in the end. Hence my fidelity to a, to a Spinoza, I guess, more than to a Deleuze. I suppose I might agree, be, but it would have to be a very qualified one. It would be like a... Um depersonalized a subjective experience yeah and then it's the shock to thought or you know bergson uh taken into cinema in which it's always creating falsities or this new future or it's undoing our habits and so it's you know absolutely still within that empiricist tradition but it's one that's not tied to um you know the the form of the subject that we're so familiar with seeing in cultural studies mm. today or something cataloging him individual experiences or something just wanted to say maybe one last thing i feel like i would be sad if i talked about that you and didn't didn't mention this but um i think maybe the final thing that i find very compelling in his work is his account of especially you know what he's been doing recently 
his account of sort of like what he thinks the dominant ideological framework is, um, but I think is really helpful for understanding like what he's committed to. Um, but I had heard him speak a few times when I was living in France. So this was like maybe 2014, 2014, 15, 16. And he began his lectures those years by talking about like the ideology of finitude and exactly in democratic materialism. Um, and I just personally found this very compelling. Um, this idea that sort of like the deconstructed, like relativistic finitude um, perspective, like isn't philosophically viable. It, it is just what people spontaneously um, think. Um, I find I still to this, you know, it hasn't been that long since those lectures, but five or six years afterwards, I still find this very, like very much to be um, true and very compelling and, and philosophically that I, I'm drawn to. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Dana Papakristu, who provided the music for the podcast. Please join us next time for episode three on nature and infinity.